Thank you for joining us this morning for worship. And this is our fourth or fifth week in the book of Ephesians. I, don't, I think it's four. I never was good at math, so we'll go with four. But it's been so good to just work through this book, to deal with the things that come out of the text. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the doctrine of election as it comes out in verse four, and we're going to keep going in verse five and six this morning. But before we do, I just want to give you a little bit of a look ahead to where we're going in the preaching at least. Next week, I'll be at a pastor's conference, and so David Williams, our elder candidate, is going to preach next Sunday, and he'll continue on in Ephesians. Then the following week, I'll be back, but we have a guest speaker with us that week. Aaron White is a dear friend of mine, and he's a pastor down in Minnetonka. He'll be here to share an encouraging word with us on Sunday the 18th, and then we'll go back into Ephesians for the next decade or so. I'm just kidding. Um, but we could. Just keep that in mind. No, it's so exciting. So I just ask you to pray with me as we start this morning, and we will look at God's word together. Father, we are truly humbled when we look and see how you have worked in the past. We can go all the way back to the beginning of time and see that you extend grace to your people. We know, Lord, that you relate to us, your people, through a covenant. And you have established that covenant now through the blood of Christ. And so as this morning we open your word together, I pray that the work of Jesus and what he has done for us would stand clearly from your word. And then as we come to the table, Lord, may it be a celebration and a remembrance of all you have done for us in Christ. I want this church to be known for our love of Jesus and of his gospel. So Father, we have no right to come to you except through the blood of Jesus. And that's how we come. So I pray that this morning you'd open our understanding Lord, take me out of the way and so that your word can clearly stand this morning. I pray that your word would have its full effect in my heart and in the hearts of those who hear. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you've been here with us for the last couple weeks, you know that we've been looking at this chapter one of Ephesians as we begin preaching through the book. And we saw, especially in verses three and four, that God has chosen us in Christ. We saw the timing of that choosing and then some of the purpose or the reason why he chose us in the last couple of weeks. And before we move into verses 5 and 6 this morning, I was thinking this past week, you know, we've been spending a lot of time looking at this doctrine from the perspective we see in Ephesians, which is from God's perspective and what God has done in acting. And I thought it might be good before we move on to just say a word about how this plays out and how this looks from our perspective, right? Because sometimes we see everything that God has done and we kind of wonder, okay, but how does, that, how does that work out in my life? We understand what God has done, but from our perspective, sometimes it looks different. So I just want to take a moment and answer the question, what does this doctrine mean? Talking about the doctrine of election, how God has chosen his people. What does that mean for, for us, for our 
conversion from our perspective? How, how would you answer the question, how do you know that you've been chosen by God? Because that's a question. When we talk about these things, people ask, well, how do you know? And so I want to address that this morning before we go. In 1 Thessalonians, and you can turn there if you want, it's just three or so books to the right of Ephesians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives what I think is a really good reasoning as to how you can have confidence or how we can know if you've ever wondered, does this apply to me? I think 1 Thessalonians gives us one of the areas in the Bible that gives us a really clear answer to that. So turn to 1 Thessalonians with me, if you would. And we're going to read starting in verse 4. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. This is what Paul says. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, For you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So how does Paul know, why does he have confidence to say that God has chosen you? He can look these people right in the eye and say, this is true of you. How does he know that? Well, he says, we know that God has chosen you because when they heard the gospel, when they heard the good news of Jesus, it had a transforming effect on their life. And we see that as we read through the passage. These are things that happened as a result of them hearing the gospel, and therefore Paul says he knows that God has chosen them. It was not as if they had heard the gospel and said the prayer or signed the card or whatever mode that might have been going on back then and then continued as if nothing had happened in their life. Rather, the hearing of the gospel produced in them repentance, conviction. Paul said it came with full conviction and led them to become examples to others in their faith over time. How do you know if this applies to you? Well, you can ask yourself, how do you respond when you hear the gospel? Is the word of God precious to you? Or do you read it and say, this is, no, this is not for me. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the unbeliever, the word is foolishness. It doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? Some savior that comes and dies and then because of his death, we now have life that doesn't make sense to me. But to those who are being saved, the word of the cross is not foolishness, but is precious. And they receive it with the faith that God gives to them. This should also be a great encouragement to anyone who has ever doubted or is struggling to believe the promises of God, which is all of us at some point or another in our Christian life. But it shouldn't cause us to doubt to the degree that we doubt whether we are loved by God or chosen by God. Do you read the word and you know it's true? I know it's true, but I struggle to believe it. 
That's very different than reading the word and rejecting it altogether. Very different categories. Struggling to believe the promises of God is not an indication that you're not saved. Rather, it's a proof to me that you are saved. Because you want to know, is this for me? No one who's unregenerate, no one who does not have the Spirit of God living in them is concerned with believing the promises of God. They have no category for that in their mind yet until the Holy Spirit changes them. So wrestling with this and thinking, oh, is this for me? I want to believe. I know it's true. I just don't feel it. That's a good sign. That's not a sign of your ultimate destruction. That is a sign that God is working in your life. And I want you to be encouraged. If you're struggling today to believe the word, to believe the things that the Bible says about you as a Christian, keep struggling. Keep reading and pray Pray that God would open your understanding. He loves to answer that prayer. God, help me understand your word. Help me know what you want for me. Jesus said in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes, I will never cast out. In individuals coming to Jesus in faith, you hear the gospel, you come to him, you repent, you say, God, I can't do this on my own, I need your help. That does not contradict God's election, rather it confirms it. The Holy Spirit is at work in those that God has chosen, and it's not always immediate, but over time, sometimes it takes months or years, but God works and overcomes the hardness of our hearts, and we freely come to Jesus for salvation. So that was just something that I was thinking about as we were working through this that I don't want us to hear. And as we go through Ephesians, we're going to see a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine coming out. But we need to understand how that works itself out. We don't just want to know this is what the Bible says and okay, I get it. I want to know how does that work itself out in my life. So as we go, we're going to stop from time to time and take some of these more applicable points. So today, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. So if you open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And even though we're going to focus on 5 and 6, and as we go through this section, my goal is to read starting from the beginning all the way through whatever text we're working in. Today it's 5 and 6, next week it'll be 7 to 10, whatever. But the point is that I want to read this so that over time, you become so familiar with this And you hear it so often that just maybe you'd be able to commit this to memory. Wouldn't that be good? When you have times of doubt and of fear and of wondering that from your memory you can recall to mind that in Christ God has chosen us. You can recall that we are to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And you can call it to mind when you need it. So I am going to read this through every Sunday to get in our minds the word of God. So this morning, let's read verses one through six and we'll begin working through those two verses. Ephesians one, starting in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. So over the past two weeks, as I said, we've been looking at this doctrine of election that's found in verse 4, and we saw how God chooses or elects those to be saved. And now when we come to verse 5 and 6, we see a bit more of the why. Remember when we started this series, I said we want to look for the how and the why as we go through this. How is God doing what he's doing, and why does God do what he does? So we're going to take these two verses, 5 and 6 this morning, and they'll each have their own point. So number one will be the blessing of adoption, and then number two from verse 6 will be the praise of God's grace. So let's start with number one, the blessing of adoption. When you come to verse 5, you'll notice that, at least in most of our versions, the words in love are placed in verse 4, although they start the thought that Paul gets to when he continues on in verse 5 and 6. This is a more accurate translation of the original text and why they put the verse divisions where they put it, I'm not sure. But this whole section, 3 to 14, is one sentence in, in the original language. There's no periods that Paul put in there. It's, it's as if he's stacking up all of these blessings and all of these benefits of being united to Christ, and he can't even stop to put a period in. He just keeps going and keeps going. Paul uses good grammar in most of his writing, but you probably don't want him teaching grammar to your kids, because this is a very long, run-on sentence, and he would get docked in seminary if he wrote a paper like this. But anyways, the flow of thought here works when Paul says that in love, God predestined us. So let's work that phrase backwards, starting with what predestination is, and then look at the fact that it was done in love. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and a theologian here, and he's written a really helpful article answering the question, what's the difference between election and predestination, right? And biblically speaking, there's not a huge difference. Here's, here's a helpful way to think about it. When the Bible talks about God predestining or predetermining things, think about it in the broad scope of the counsel of God's will. Everything that comes to pass has been decreed by God to happen. When we talk about election, that's a more specific thing where God elects a people for himself. Also, predestination refers not only to good things, but also to everything, good and bad, that comes to pass. For example, in Acts 4, we read that Herod and Pilate and the Jewish people and the Gentiles were all gathered together to do to Jesus whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. It's from Acts 4. So his predetermining of all things that come to pass includes good and bad, and this would fall under the category of predestination or predetermining. Election is similar, yet more specific, more dialed in. For one thing, we always see election spoken of in positive terms, usually referring to the salvation or eternal salvation of those God has chosen. So in verses 4 and 5, when Paul says, in love he predestined us, there's a, there's a thrust or an emphasis that we're supposed to see when we read here. The fact that God has chosen us in love rules out the idea that there's some sort of cold, mechanical, machine-like operation in God. 
Sometimes when we talk about these doctrinal things, we get the idea that God is like this cranky, old, mean guy who's doing nice things to some people and he's mean to other people. That's not, that's not the motivation. That's not God's heart. It clearly says, in love, God chose us. His motivating factor, as we said, is not what we do, but is simply flowing out of his character. If we continue on then in verse 5 and we look at the next phrase, we see that God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ. God doesn't choose a people for himself and then just leave us to stumble around and figure out our own way. Rather, he chooses us and brings us in, like David said a few minutes ago, into a relationship with him. And there are people in my family and people in the church our church, who have participated and been affected by adoption. And I think that adoption is one of the clearest and best illustrations of God's love for his people. And it's no wonder why Paul uses this image of adoption. Interestingly, when we read the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are no laws or commands regarding adoption. It doesn't show up until the New Testament. But readers of this letter in Ephesus and the surrounding areas would think of adoption as it was practiced in their culture. And it's interesting because Paul uses this phrase and he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't explain what it is, which means it was at least common enough that he can use this as an illustration to them and not take the time to stop and say, okay, here's what I mean by this. So this practice would have been done as it was doing under Roman law and under their societal structure. Now here's what was going on then, which is very similar to how it happens now. In that time, an adopted child received all of the rights, the benefits of a natural-born child and was released from the control of the natural father. Okay, much, much like it happens today. Being adopted meant that the child now falls under the protection the guidance, the provision of a new father and a new family. The adopted child received the new family's name and shared in all of the benefits and the status of the new family. I mean, can you see the similarities here (laughs) for what happens when God brings us into his family? As I said, it's no wonder Paul uses this. When we were adopted into God's family and brought in, We are now entitled to all of the benefits of being a child of God. Which is why we had David read from Galatians. It fits so closely with this. Whatever God has promised to his people in his word, we know it's true of us. Not because we're outside looking in the window trying to figure out what's going on with the family. We're there. We're in it. God has brought us into his family Just as in Roman times, an adopted child was no longer under the control of his natural father, so we, when we are brought into fellowship, into the family of God, are no longer under control of our earthly nature. As the Bible would put it, our sin nature, under control of Satan. We are under God's care and protection, and what a place to be. It's so good. It's so good to be there. When God adopts us, we take on a new name. We're Christians, Christ followers. Our identity is no longer that of sin and shame, but we have a new identity, a new family, a new way of thinking about things because we're in the family of God. The final or ultimate purpose 
of God's choosing his people is to bring a people together that he can delight in and enjoy forever. In love, he predestined us. And not only do we see that this was done in love, but verse 5 tells us that it was done according to the purpose of his will, or more literally, on the basis of the good pleasure of his will. I wish the ESV would have included that phrase, good pleasure, because it indicates that God did not choose us in some sort of cold, mechanical way, just like the love part shows us, right? God took great delight in thinking ahead of his people and those who he would be kindly disposed towards, meaning, (coughs) excuse me, he had an attitude of kindness and generosity towards the people that he has chosen. This good pleasure of his will, then, is the basis of his choosing, which helps reinforce that it's not based on anything that we've done. And we covered that extensively in the last couple of weeks. It's on the basis of the good pleasure of God's will. And of course, Paul is always eager to point to Jesus. And so he says that this adoption is through Christ. You see that in verse 5. When we get to the end of chapter 1, Paul is going to begin stacking up all of these things about Jesus, about his position, about where he is, about what he's doing, about God raising him from the dead, and I can't wait to get to the end of chapter 1 because it is so bent on exalting Jesus, and that is what Paul wants us to do as well, which is why all through this book and all through this chapter we see it's in him, in him, through Christ, through Christ. And the reason is that Paul is overwhelmed with God's grace through Jesus, and he wants us to also see that. So at the end of the chapter, we're going to hear Paul's passion building and building and building, and it's wonderful, and I can't wait to get there, but we'll have to wait. So number one, we see the blessing of adoption. Number two from verse six will be the praise of God's grace. I'm not sure how many of you pay attention to the sermon titles. I don't spend a great deal of time trying to come up with clever titles for my sermons. Maybe I should spend a little more time. But this week's title is Blessed by Grace. And I get this from verse 6. So let's read verses 5 and 6 again. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. As we said when we started chapter 1, Paul is calling us with him to bless the Lord. And verse 14 and back and 1 through 14, they're all showing why we should bless God. Here we see that God's election should cause us to praise his glorious grace. And that it is by this grace that we are blessed. Therefore, my title, Blessed by Grace. So let's take a closer look at verse 6 this morning. We see here that God's ultimate purpose in selecting or predestining a people for himself is so that those people would recognize his work of grace and give him glory and praise for what he has done. When we read, he predestined us for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, we could paraphrase it or say it a different way like this, the knowledge of what God has done for us in Jesus, in choosing us, in bringing us into his own family, adopting us as children, should 
produce in us an attitude of praise and worship to him. So what is it that we are supposed to praise? Because Paul makes it really specific. Here's what you are to praise. And it's the grace. We praise the grace, the glorious grace of God. Later in this section, we're going to see this phrase, to the praise of his glory, repeat two more times. But each time it says just to the praise of his glory. This is the only time that the text calls us to praise the glorious grace of God. God's grace, his undeserved favor is put on display here in Ephesians 1 with great clarity. In fact, this whole section of 3 to 14 is an unpacking or an outworking of the grace of God in his plan of redemption. Often in the New Testament, when the writers use the word grace, it's in contrast or it's opposite to the idea of works, right? We see grace and we see works kind of held in contrast on two different sides of the spectrum. In Romans 11, Paul is speaking about how God throughout history has had a people for his own possession. He's chosen his people. And he says this in verse 6. But if this choosing, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, the very definition of grace is that it's given not earned on the basis of anything we do. Rather, grace is a gift. In Romans 4, Paul says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what he is due. If we, if we work for something, say you have a job, you put in your time, you produce a product or a service or whatever you're doing, and you get a paycheck at the end of the week, you don't go to your employer and just give him a big hug and say, Oh, thank you for this gift. No, you earned it. You worked for it. You put in your time, you do the service, you produce a product, and you expect to get compensated for that per your agreement. That's not the way that grace works. We don't put in some kind of time or put in some sort of effort, and then God rewards us by giving us grace. That's not how it works. The grace of God is given to us apart from any work that we do so that Remember what I said last week? It's all about glory and credit. Who gets the glory? Who gets the credit? And in this case, it is God who gets the glory. Next week, when David starts in verse 7, we're going to see Paul talk about the abundance or the riches of God's grace, meaning that it is limitless and he will never run out of it towards us. In Paul's mind and in his theology and likewise in ours, grace should be central to the Christian life. Next, we see that it is this grace that we are blessed with. In verse 6, To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. When Paul says, with which he has blessed us, it's referring back to this glorious grace. God has blessed us, or literally, graced us with grace. Maybe sometimes you've heard someone say, thanks for gracing us with your presence. Sometimes it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, snarky remark. But what it's meaning is, thanks for your undeserved presence. We didn't deserve it, but thanks for being here. Okay? God has graced us, given us this grace, without any deserving on our part. Now, how has he done this? How has God blessed us with grace? It is through 
or in the beloved. Who is that? You can give me the Sunday school answer and I promise it'll be right. It's Jesus. We are blessed in Jesus with this grace, right? And this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is directly referred to as beloved, the beloved in that form. There's other places. If you think back to Matthew in chapter 3, when John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus and the heavens open and the voice of God comes out and said, this is my beloved son, or later at the transfiguration, chapter Yep, 17, I think, of Matthew, and the same thing happens. The heavens open, and the voice of God says, this, Jesus, is my beloved son. I think there's plenty of biblical warrant for us to see this as Jesus. We are blessed in Jesus with this grace. This would only serve, I think, in Paul's mind and for us to reinforce what we have already seen and what we will continue to see Namely, that we come to participate in the blessing of God through Jesus. Verse 3 of chapter 1, God has blessed us in Christ. Verse 5, we are adopted through Christ. In verse 6, God has given us grace in Christ. And on and on and on, this theme will go throughout the book. So this morning, we saw that the blessing of adoption comes through Christ. And then we saw, number two, that we are to praise his grace. And as we come to a close, and before we go to the table, I just want to ask this question then. So what? What, what difference does this make to know what God has done? I think there's two things, as I was thinking about this this week. There's two reasons why we need to know this. Knowing that God has adopted me and given me grace should help me remember and it should help me forget. Here's what I mean. Knowing that God adopted me should help me to remember now I have a new identity. I have a new family. I have new friends and support and people around me I have the benefits of everything that God has promised in his word. All of that because God has adopted into his family those of us whom he's chosen. Should help us remember. Also, knowing that God adopted us into his family should help us forget. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of Christ. Knowing what God has done should help us to forget what lies behind. You say, I don't, you don't know what I've done in the past. You don't know the ickiness and the sin and the failure, maybe even this morning. You know what the Bible says God does with your sin when you come to him in Christ? He puts it as far away as the east is from the west. And he holds it against us no more. So knowing what God has done for us in Christ should cause us to forget what lies behind. Don't let it drag you down. That is exactly what the enemy wants this morning. For you to be hung up on what has happened in your past. God says, no, you have a new name. 
You have a new identity. I gave my son for you that you would no longer be a slave to your sin. Forget what lies behind and press on to make Christ your own. Knowing what God has done should help us forget. And if you do not know Jesus in this way, if you do not know the blessing of being adopted into his family, you can do it. You can know it this morning. Hear the gospel. Hear the message that God has done everything necessary for you. And in hearing the gospel and in responding to that message, you can come and experience the fullness of God's love and the benefits of being adopted into his family. Let's pray together. Lord, what an unbelievable truth that although we were dead in our sin, Christ came at the right time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth your Son who lived the life we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die so that now because of faith in Jesus we can be brought into your family. We can have a new identity. We can forget the things that drug us down in the past and press on in the strength that you provide to us. Oh God, work this into our hearts. Don't let us be trapped in sin, but help us to realize that in Christ and through the empowering of your Holy Spirit, we can make progress towards holiness, towards becoming like you. And it's all because of what you have done through Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.